Well, hello. My name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. Love to get to be here with you this morning. And a special um, welcome to my friends at the West Campus as well. I hope you all have um, enjoyed the study of Genesis as much as I have. I've actually always loved Genesis even before I studied it in depth because I love stories. Um, I have always read lots and lots of novels. I've decided that there is no novelist who has anything on the stories in the book of Genesis. And I was telling somebody that recently, how much I like the stories. And they said, well, Genesis sort of stresses me out because it starts out so perfectly and then it takes like no time at all before we start screwing everything up and people do these really dumb things and it could have been so perfect and it's not. What I think they're missing though is the fact that it's true. Um, we have messed things up all through the book of Genesis, but God is there to rescue and redeem us every one of those times. We'll find that today as well. Um, these three chapters that we studied are absolutely a roller coaster of faith and action and emotion. We have tons to cover as we do every week during this study of Genesis. It's all really good things. So let's just go ahead and step on that roller coaster beginning in chapter 20. I'm gonna start by only reading the first couple of verses. So uh, you can either follow along or feel free to just listen. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So normally, a roller coaster will take you up and then drop you down and then leave you in the same place you started from. The thing about today's roller coaster is we take a deep plunge spiritually with Abraham first then we get to see him sort of at the very top of his game by the time we end today. And then we don't ever have to go back to the same place we started from. We get left there, and it's a good place to be. Um, but before we get to that summit of Abraham's faith story, we see here that he has repeated a potentially disastrous sin that he started first, he did for the first time in chapter 12, by claiming his wife Sarah as his sister. You remember maybe that that happened first when Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt. It was an unknown land. The people didn't know him there, so he decides that he will call her his sister because he's afraid that somebody's gonna come out of the woodwork, some powerful man or king, and in fact, in uh, chapter 12, it was Pharaoh, who will claim Sarah as um, their wife and kill him to get him out of the way so they can have Sarah. Okay, I don't know what we're all collectively spending on our makeup and hair products and anti-aging serums, but it has to be too much because Sarah didn't have any of that. And she is so... Um, fetching that every time she comes to some new place, every guy comes out of the woodwork wanting to like throw her over his shoulder and take her home. Um, and so my takeaway from this has been, you know what, on those days when I wake up and I see the bags under my eyes and the blemishes and whatever, I think, hey, that's great. Extreme beauty is probably a lot more effort than it's worth. No one's gonna steal me today. No one's gonna try to, I'm good. Life's real simple because of that. So if you're ever having a bad hair day or a bad whatever day, just think, that's great, no problem. Instead of proudly claiming Sarah, instead of being proud of her, instead of protecting her, um, when they come to this new place, Abraham tells everyone that she is his sister. 
Um, and before long, King Abimelech comes in and claims her. But before they can consummate that relationship, he and all of his household fall uh, deeply ill, and God comes to him in a dream and says, Abimelech, you're a dead man because you have taken another man's wife, and it's just not anyone's wife. It is the wife of my prophet Abraham. Um, And because of that, you and your whole household are gonna die if you don't return her. And um, much to his credit, this pagan king, who we don't know has walked with God, um, heard his voice and immediately obeys. I guess it's not probably all that um, surprising if God came to me in a dream and told me I was gonna be a dead man. I'd probably be pretty quick to get up and obey too. Um, Abimelech returns Sarah to Abraham. He confronts him with this great lie that has put his household in danger. And instead of Abraham sort of being a man and owning up to it, he gets all Weasley here, and he says, well, she is my half-sister. Well, I didn't think you had the moral fiber anyway to do the right thing, and God's the one who sent me here in this unknown place anyway. What was I supposed to do? Um, Quickly checks off that list of ways to deflect personal responsibility. Doesn't take him long to do that here. Let's pick up the story again in chapter 20, verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated." Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abimelech's gift here of the livestock and servants were a very public way of Um, communicating that he had not consummated this relationship with Sarah, that he was completely innocent of taking this other man's wife. Abraham, acting here as God's prophet, and it's the first time that we see um, the mention of being a prophet uh, in the Bible, prays for Abimelech's health to return. It does happen. In response, God sovereignly heals both Abimelech and his entire household. This whole ugly episode happened, and it really was an ugly episode um, because Abraham's faith wavered as he and Sarah entered this new land. Abraham has been walking with God for many years. They're intimate friends. We have seen some great acts of faith on his part. And yet, when he's faced with the unknown here, um, he didn't think that God either could or would protect him. He thought that he had a way to take care of himself and Sarah better than God could. So he reaches back into his past. He picks back up this old sin that I'm sure he thought he would, had licked all these years, would never come back up again. Um, because of his lack of faith, he deeply wronged his own wife. Uh, this other man, he put many lives in jeopardy. And, and worst of all, I think he portrays God to this pagan nation as weak and unable to care for his people. And yet, despite Abraham's lack of faith, God intervenes and protects his covenant with Abraham. That promise given back in Chapter 12, that we studied the very first week of the semester, he's repeated several times since then. It was the promise that he would make Abraham into a great nation, that, uh, and that would be through Abraham's offspring with Sarah. 
when Abraham allows Sarah to be taken by Abimelech potentially as his wife, he's putting that promise in jeopardy because Abraham needed to be the undisputed father of any of Sarah's children. That was God's plan. And my human response here is, Abraham, really? You get to walk and talk with God all this time and, and, and you've done this thing? What's wrong? But that's my human response. God in his rich mercy and grace here uses imperfect people like Abraham, like us, to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't have to, but he does. And so if any of us here today feel disqualified because of a past sin, um, because of um, something that we have done to displease God, that is not so. Abraham messed up, but God picked him back up, um, used him in mighty ways. He, in fact, is the, um, the father of, of all believers from that point on. God built the entire family of faith out of this flawed man. God's mercies are new every morning, and I hope that's encouraging to us and our walks with God as well. One commentator says this about Genesis chapter 20. Love this. It is good to serve a God like that, a God who remains sovereign even when we doubt his ability to care for us, a God who remains gracious even when we sin. To serve a God like that is the world's greatest joy and opportunity. To know that he is like that is the greatest incentive you will ever have to keep from sinning. Okay, let's continue reading in chapter 21. I'm gonna read verses one through seven. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age." So Isaac is born, and that long-awaited promise is fulfilled. And you'll notice that this passage here is sort of an abrupt departure from the conversation we've just been having about um, Abraham and Abimelech. It's actually a continuation of the story that we left off in chapter 18 last week when Abraham is at his tent and the angels and the Lord come and tell him that about this time next year, you and Sarah will have a son. We're picking up the thread of that story right there. It is a year later. Um, it's so interesting to me, though, that this great thing that has happened, uh, this miraculous event, it's event that's been anticipated for so many years by Abraham and Sarah, uh, that really the whole narrative of Genesis been, has been leading up to, is really told in sort of very simple, anticlimactic language. Uh, we don't get the birth story. We don't get what it was like when Sarah realized she was pregnant. We don't get any of those details that we want, like in every TV show, you know, where there's some kind of um, birth Instead, his story is just told in this one simple sentence, the story of Isaac's birth. And the emphasis here is really on 
God and not on Sarah or Isaac or Abraham. And the ESV were told that God visited Sarah. The NIV uses the words, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. The original verb here carries this idea that God had attentive care and concern for Sarah and had it all the years that she was waiting. It implied that God remembered Sarah, which he did, that he had very tenderly and ably cared for her and watched over her. We are told that Isaac's birth happened just as God said it would. A year ago, you'll remember that Sarah laughed in that tent in bitterness at the idea that she would conceive a son in her old age. Um, Now she laughs and those around her laugh with joy and with awe at what the Lord can do. Uh, Sarah and Abraham delight though, not only in this son, but also in God himself. Um, In chapter 18, you'll remember that God rhetorically asked Sarah, is anything too hard for me? And the answer here is no. He answers with Isaac, nothing is too hard for the living God. So God's promise is fulfilled. God's provision is on display. Everyone who heard this story, who saw this baby from the day it happened all the way up through today would know and remember that it was God who had miraculously provided for this child and that nothing is too hard for him. The birth of Isaac is something that only God could make happen. And I love this prayer of Jeremiah on uh, your verse sheet. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So chapter 20 took a pretty hard look at some of Abraham's shortcomings. Uh, He was obviously not a perfect man, But for most of his life, he really did have extraordinary faith. Look with me at Romans 4, 19 on your verse sheet. Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he had considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do as he had promised. Abraham was convinced that God could do what he said he would do. You know, Isaac's birth is a pivotal story in um, our faith history. God said he would make a great nation, offspring more numerous than the stars, from Abraham's son Isaac. The Jews, God's God's chosen people, would be the physical descendants of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, But we as Christ followers are his spiritual descendants as well. This is really our spiritual heritage just as much as it is for the Jewish faith. And here's the great thing about Abraham. He does not get so focused on his blessings that he forgets about the God who gave them. Instead, he's very quick to worship God in obedience. God said to name this son Isaac. He names the boy Isaac. God said that all of the male children in his household were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Isaac is circumcised on the eighth day. This is worship through obedience. We also learn Isaac's birth story um, as a story of trusting God's timing in our lives. 
Isaac was born according to God's plan, and that plan was good. He is God, and we are not. He hears us when we pray. He knows and loves us more deeply than we could ever imagine. In this case, in all of those years of the hard, hard waiting, he had the big picture in mind. Sarah had only a small little portion of it, but even when it's hard, and even when we only see a tiny sliver of our own stories, and we can't see that whole big picture, we can trust that God is good, that God is in control, and that his timing is perfect. It would not have been nearly as evident to the world um, and to us that Isaac's birth was a miraculous gift from God had that birth happened sooner than it did. Okay, well, let's continue. Three or four years have now passed. Um, Isaac is weaning age, and we'll pick up reading in chapter 21, verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah tells you to do, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So Ishmael is sent away. So you'll remember the story of Ishmael's birth from chapter 16. Sarah is tired of waiting on a baby, doesn't think it will ever happen. So she cooks up her own plan for Abraham to take Hagar as his wife. Hagar conceives. That son is Ishmael. Um, at this time right now, that child is, Ishmael is probably um, a teenager, maybe 15 or 16. Family drama has ensued ever since, just as you would think it would, um, when one, you sort of take plans over from God, and two, when you have two women in the same household. Um, and you also may have noticed that this theme of laughter comes up a lot. Isaac's name means laughter. Sarah laughed in bitterness before Isaac was conceived. Then she and everybody laugh in joy um, at his miraculous birth. Here, at the time of Isaac's weaning, you see Ishmael laughing mockingly at his little brother. He has enjoyed the... Um, undivided attention and love of his father Abraham for all of these years. I'm sure he assumed that as the only son he would be, and as the firstborn son, he would be Abraham's heir. Remember, Abraham had a vast fortune, um, and he's, he's, he, mock, he mocks Isaac. And when that happens, it sets off all kinds of warning bells for Sarah. Uh, Ishmael is a threat to Isaac. Sarah knows it. And uh, look back with me at Genesis 17, 19 on your verse sheet. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. 
I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So addition to this really um, normal and understandable sort of human strife and jealousy that's going on uh, because of this family dynamic that they've created, there cannot be any confusion as to who Abraham's true heir is going to be. And so while the traditional birthright would have gone to the eldest son, God has these other plans and so God really graciously once again intervenes in Abraham's life. Uh, but it is a deeply painful experience. Abraham is a parent and he is a real man and sending his son away from forever, away from his love and protection, away from getting to see him grow up and to be a man and to see his um, descendants would be every bit as painful for Abraham as we would imagine it to be for one of us. And yet Abraham humbly submits to God. He rose early in the morning. He gathered supplies to send with them. We know because of that he obeyed quickly. Abraham's great faith is shown again in just unquestioning obedience. Because of God's provision and Abraham's obedience, the future nation of Israel will clearly be able to trace their heritage through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the fathers of their faith, the fathers of God's promises. Abraham had heard the audible voice of God when he says, do what Sarah says. Um, most often we hear the voice of God through his word, but like Abraham, we get the privilege and the opportunity to walk in faith and humbly submit to and obey the voice of God. If God's word is convicting us to step out in faith in some area or to stop doing something that we know we shouldn't be doing, we get that same great opportunity as Abraham to faithfully trust God that his ways are always best even when they're hard. Okay, let's continue reading in chapter 21. We're picking up in verse 15. Uh, Ishmael's been sent away. When the water in the skin was gone, she, Hagar, put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of this child. As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up. Lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. So once again, God provides for Abraham and his family. God is with Ishmael. This boy who is conceived outside of God's plan, uh, who had mocked and challenged Isaac, um, is still Abraham's son. And so God powerfully and graciously provides and blesses Ish provides for and blesses Ishmael. Um, and this very emotionally charged event comes to a close, and Abraham's next challenge will have to do with the land he's living on. So in chapter 20, after this Abraham, I mean, uh, Sarah's my sister and not my wife debacle, Abraham gives, 
Abimelech gives Abraham permission to live anywhere in his kingdom that he wants to. Abraham is still there these many years later, but now there's a dispute over water rights. Neither Abraham's people nor his livestock will be able to stay in that land if they don't have access to um, a sustainable source of water. Abraham will ever, either have to leave or work out this situation with Abimelech and quickly. And at first glance, I thought, all right, so we have a treaty here. This doesn't seem all that important, particularly sandwiched between this sort of emotionally charged event of uh, Abraham having to send off Ishmael and then Abraham's great test later. But if you take a closer look, there's some really important things going on here other than just this handshake over a water well. So look with me at verses 22 through 24 in chapter 21. At the time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So Abraham has gone to Abimelech and said, hey, I've dug this well. Your people are saying that it's not mine. We need to work this thing out. Um, and honestly, I think Abimelech has earned the right to um, hold a grudge against Abraham on account of him almost being struck dead uh, because of what Abraham had done to him. But instead of tossing him out, uh, which would have been easier in this situation, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, recognized, acknowledged, and made their decisions based on the fact and their correct observation that Abraham is God's man, that Abraham is God's friend, and that it, and that Abraham, or that Abraham is blessed by God, and that God protects him and is with him. So Abraham's faith, coupled with God's provision in his life, is so evident and visible to this pagan king that he knows that to go against Abraham is to go against the living God. He knows that Abraham and all he does um, is with God and that God is with him. And therefore, when this dispute comes up, he gives Abraham the benefit of the doubt and Abimelech will establish this important treaty with Abraham that is over water rights. And in the original promise with God in uh, chapter 12, you remember that God says that he will bless those who blesses Abraham and curse those who dishonor him. Abimelech gets that and acts on it. And so God's provision here for Abraham is really clear again. God is providing the water for Abraham and this arid land that will allow him to stay in the land. He is providing um, Abimelech's understanding and cooperation with Abraham's plan. And I love it because Abraham's faith is also very clear. Look at verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. That's where the treaty was made. And called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So trees are generally slow growing. They need a good water source to stay alive, especially in that place. Abraham plants a tree and he worships God after this treaty has been made. 
He's trusting that God will continue to provide that place for him to stay and continue to provide this life-giving source of water. Otherwise, why would you bother to plant a tree that's going to take a long time to grow? I love it um, how he trusts God here in a way that he hasn't before. Abraham doesn't own this land now. Remember, he's just allowed to stay on it as part of this kingdom of Gerar. But this place called Beersheba will later become the uh, southern boundary of Israel. So he is here in the promised land. Uh, and in faith, he calls out and worships the living God and calls him the everlasting God. You know, I think it's so easy when we're in a good place like Abraham is here, um, experiencing maybe prosperity and great blessing in our lives, to think that that prosperity or that blessing in whatever form it takes is sort of the result of our hard work, our obedience, our, um, you know, our whatever it is, that our work. Um, it's just something that we've earned. And sometimes we forget to acknowledge God and those blessings, uh, but not so with Abraham. God provides for Abraham, and once again, God, uh, Abraham credits that prosperity and that blessing straight to God alone. He takes no credit here for um, the good things that are going on in his life. Look with me at Psalm 23 on your verse sheet. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. My prayer is that we would be women who, pro who um, credit our prosperity and blessing to God alone too, that we would not forget God in our blessings. Okay, let's move on to chapter 22. Isaac is now approaching manhood. Again, some years have passed Sarah and Abraham have undoubtedly spent these years watching Isaac grow up, looking forward to day, the day when he will marry, um, begin having children, and start that whole um, line of descendants that are as numerous as the sand uh, on the seashore. But let's read chapter 22, verses 1 through 8. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place on which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. That means putting it on his back so Isaac would carry it. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Okay, so right away, we know a, the key fact in this passage that Abraham does not yet know. And that is that um, God asks Isaac to sacrifice his son as a test. It's a test of Abraham's faith. We know that um, 
it is a test of Abraham's faith and obedience. At this point, Abraham does not. And I will tell you that this story unsettles me every time I read it. I have read it a number of times in um, preparing for today, and it never fails to unsettle me. And the reason it does is because every time I read it, I can't help but wonder, would I have Abraham's faith? Um, I think I finally decided it's okay to just have that unsettled feeling uh, and to also love this story at the same time because here is one of the most profound pictures of man's faith and, and God's provision in all of scripture. I think it's also important to know that this test of Abraham was unique to him. Although we can all point to times in our lives where we've been called out um, to obedience, where we've had to decide whether or not we would trust and obey God. This unusual situation was specific to Abraham. We should not necessarily expect this type of testing, uh, but there is so much we can glean in this story for our own walks with God. I want you to notice in verse